We'll be in Deuteronomy chapter 5 this morning. Last week, we talked about the first commandment, that we should have no other gods before God. We looked at how peculiar God is, how he is unique. There is no one like him. We considered how preeminent he is in his existence and in his importance. We talked about how possessive he is of his own glory and of his people. And all these lead us to love, to worship, to serve God alone. The first commandment deals primarily with the object of our worship. The second will focus on the manner. Stand with me as we read from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Deuteronomy 5, 8 through 10. And this is God's word. If you let it, it will change your life. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Pray with me. Father, shape us through these commandments. Make us more like you. Work in our hearts in this time. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, we looked at the first commandment, and that's all about no other gods, the, the exclusive covenant loyalty that God demands of us as his people. And the second one flows directly from it. You don't have a second commandment without the first commandment. In fact, it's such a close relationship that Catholics, among others, put these commandments together as one commandment. And I think there's some value in that. Because until you know who God is and what he's done, and you recognize that there's none other like him, you don't really know how to approach him. But now that we've got a little bit of a sense of who he is and what he's done, and now that we've got a little bit of a sense that he is unique, that he is, he is different, that he is preeminent, that he is, is possessive of his glory and that he will not give his glory to another. Now that we kind of understand that, now we have a framework whereby we can approach him. He demands not only exclusive covenant loyalty, but he demands exclusivity in our worship as well. He's told us how to worship and how not to worship. But before we get into the do's and don'ts of worship, remember, I said each commandment shows us two things. Each commandment shows us about God himself. It teaches us the nature and the works of God. And then it puts requirements upon us. So let's first ask the question, what does the second commandment reveal about God? The first thing we want to look at is what do we learn about God from these words? And there's really kind of two points. One is more minor. The other is more major. This first one is kind of, I think it's actually more minor. And it's that God cannot be represented by created things. You can't take something physical to represent an immaterial God. You cannot take something finite to represent the infinite. In fact, even our word infinity 
just doesn't quite hit the notion of infinity, does it? Can you? Here's how strange infinity is. Think of all the numbers you can think of. I bet I can name a bunch of numbers you weren't thinking of. You, the, the set of just whole numbers, whole counting numbers is infinite. You can't, there's no stopping point. Well, you throw, you throw in the halfway points, 1.5, 2.5, 3.5. It's still an infinite number of things. How does that work? Cut them in half. It's still infinite. Two, four, six, seven. That's infinite. Wait, what? <laughs> we can't even grasp this idea of infinity. How in the world are we going to represent it with something finite? God cannot be represented by created things. Verse 8 says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And, and the reason for that is that we can't make anything that comes even close to God. Now this is what we normally think of when we think of the commandment, right? We think of things like this picture. This, this is a cult image of Artemis, which is the patron deity of Ephesus. Ephesus was kind of the center of Artemis worship. We think of things like this. We think of something you can bow down to. I mean, you look at, you probably can't see it from your distance. It's even hard for me to see, but, but in the picture that I was looking at on the computer, there's intricate detail uh, crafted into this image. This isn't just a, a bland statue. I mean, this is a statue with all kinds of fine workings and all of these, all down it, there's all these different people uh, that are carved into it and there's all this, all this stuff, all the facial detail and all kinds of things in there. That's what we normally think of. We think of something that we can bow down to and worship. We think of something like that and we know that we can't do that, right? That's kind of the obvious application of this commandment. But why can't we do that? What, what's the reason? Why can't, I, why can't I make something like this and, and worship God? Why can't, why can't I do that? What is it about God that makes it to where an image is, is not to be used for worship, directly to worship? I mean, we use images, right? Right? Yeah. I, I, it, it'd be hard to find a church, an evangelical church for sure, that doesn't have a cross somewhere. And somewhere where you could probably see it in worship. We've got stained glass windows. Each of them with images of Christ. In certain uh, particular instances, this is him holding a sheep, the good shepherd. You got him standing at the door and knocking. There's him praying in the garden of Gethsemane. I can't see the back one over there. I can't remember what it is either. You've got him walking on water on this side. There's, there's a, um, he's, he's healing someone here. You got all these different pictures and images of Christ. And then we have other kinds of images too. Other things that, that represent our faith. The, the tabernacle was full of images. Pomegranates all over the place. The lampstands were made like flowers. The, the altar, the bronze altar, you know there was stuff. Pictures on the sides. In the Ark of the Covenant, two cherubim, wings extended out, touching in the middle, cherubim all over the veil between that holy of holies and the almost holy of holies, like the, the, the more holy than the other stuff, but less holy than that place. See, there was, there was a sense in which 
the whole temple ground is holy. But then as you move in further, you move into the tabernacle or the temple itself. That's a holy place. And then within that holy place, there's an even holier place, the, the most holy place. The images are all over the place. And, and it's not that images are around worship. Images that are, are utilized to decorate worship spaces, it's not, that's not the problem. The problem is when I do something like that, when I build something, it just doesn't reflect God. And how can it? One psalmist says, all the heavens cannot hold you, Lord. Anything we try to do to even make an analogy of what God is like is severely limited, especially when we think of God in terms of people. Because we people, he created us in his image, male and female, but we have so marred that image with sin that, that it's hardly recognizable. It's almost impossible to find that image of God in us. So sons and Adam of Adam and daughters of Eve that we are, if we can't represent God, not, not in that kind of a, a, a good, pretty close to perfect sense, if we can't get anywhere near that, how much less can a goat or flower? How much less could a, even, even something powerful and amazing like a thunderstorm or the starry hosts? How can they represent God? Every one of these things are created by God and they're all under his control. None of them are adequate. But there's an even more important reason that we are not to make false images. The more important reason, it's not just because nothing can represent God. That would be bad enough. We, we might could just assume, well, let's just get all the images that we can make and put them all together and, and somehow one piece of this and one piece of that, we can eventually kind of piece together kind of what God's like. There's something even more fundamental about God Something that's more important even than the fact that we can't represent him by created things. And that is that God is jealous. Wait, wait, jealous? That sounds strange. Why, why would God be jealous? Isn't that a bad thing? Deuteronomy 5, 9. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Seven times the adjective here for jealous is used and every single time it's describing God. In fact, so much so, God, God is so considered jealous that he's even named jealous. Exodus uh, 34 verse 14 says this, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Have you ever said to your kid, I should just change your middle name? God is so jealous that he can even be called jealous as a name. Gerhard von Rad was an Old Testament scholar. He put it this way. It is Yahweh's will to be the only God for Israel, and he is not disposed to share his claim for worship and love with any other divine power. He also says that this relationship between God and his people is characterized, quote, by an intolerant demand for exclusivity. God is intolerant. Yes, he is, because he's jealous. Now, we think of jealous, and we think of that being a bad thing. You've got something I want, and I'm jealous. That's bad. 
But you see, what God is jealous for is what he deserves. It, it, it's really a recognition of who he is. I mean, think about it. If he's the only one worthy of worship and we're worshiping something else, aren't we cheating him? It's robbing God. Not only that, it's a fundamental denial of reality. For us to worship something else or for us to make an image that doesn't even come close to who he is and claim that we're worshiping him, it just denies the facts. It cheats God out of the worship that he's due and it cheats us from fulfilling our responsibility to worship him. It's, it really boils down to when we create an image to worship, even if we're worshiping, trying to worship the true God, we're really worshiping the image. I heard someone stand up and talk about how they thought that in, in this church, they had hymnals, they didn't have a screen. So they didn't do praise songs. Um, they only did what was in the hymnal. And we were voting, uh, the church was voting to adopt new hymnals, to update the hymnals. And of course, you know, you've got a couple of different things. Well, we got to make sure they match the pews, right? We got to make sure all the favorite songs are in there, right? And so it passed all those tests. Everybody liked the color. Everybody liked the, you know, their songs were in there. One person stood up at the business meeting and said, I think that we need to get a screen because I really don't feel like I can worship unless words are on the screen. Then, honey, you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping the screen. The problem, though, is that some of us think that we can't worship without hymnals either. And honey, you ain't worshiping God. You're worshiping the hymnal. You see, it's not about what tools you have at your disposal. It's about how you feel about those tools. Because when they take the place of prominence, they become the object of our worship. And it doesn't matter what they are. It can be good things. It can be wonderful things. It can be helpful and holy things but we can turn them into idols. There can be no object of worship except the only one who's worthy of it, and that's God himself. He's too jealous for us to do otherwise. And the way that we treat him in worship has a great deal of bearing on how he treats us. There's two ways. One, he punishes sin. We see his jealousy in the way he punishes sin. Verse 9. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, there's a sense in which we say, wait a minute, that's not fair. If kids didn't do anything, right? But see, here's the problem. Sin in the father translates to the son. What, uh, someone put it this way. What you do in moderation, your kids will do in excess. So when you do just a little bit, They'll pick up on it and they won't know when to stop. You can see that, especially among young kids. Just say one word your kid shouldn't hear. Lacey's shaking her head real big because she works with, with little ones. You hear those words all the time, don't you? Yeah. And parent probably said it not even thinking about it just one time and that's all it took. You can tell your kid something good a thousand times and they still don't remember. You tell them one bad word and man, they never forget it. It goes straight into that center of the brain for long-term memory. And that's the problem with sin, isn't it? Sin metastasizes. It, it continues to grow. And so the sin of the father impacts the son, not just because of what the father does, but because the son will have those same tendencies and even more so. 
That's why you can't stand your kids when they're teenagers. Because they're little you. They're acting just like you did. Now you're seeing it from your mom's perspective or your dad's. I got one that just turned a teenager and he's been a teenager for quite a while. If y'all catch my drift here. And you know what I see in him? I see some of the same tendencies that I have. God's jealousy is directly connected to his wrath. In fact, multiple times you see God jealous because they're worshiping someone else. And so here comes God's wrath. Deuteronomy 32 is a great example of this. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods they had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. In other words, they were creating new gods out of thin air that nobody had even heard of before. He goes on, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger. Do you see the connection here? The jealousy and the wrath. They provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. God punishes sin. That shows us how jealous he is. He's so jealous. He is so protective. Uh, he's so zealous, and, and, and he is so filled with the desire to be worshipped rightly, that when we don't, it spells our doom. But he also shows steadfast love. Look at the end. Look at verse ten. He shows steadfast love. So, so those who hate him get the bare brunt of his wrath. But showing steadfast love to thousands of them. Do you notice it, 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 the wrath? It was three or four generations. Do you notice this one? It's thousands. Yours may even spell that out to the thousandth generation or to a thousand generations, your version might say, of those who love me and keep my commandments. You know why? You know why he can do that? Because you're willing to accept it. When we are worshiping God rightly and not worshiping false gods and not worshiping God by our own prescribed means, which we'll get to in just a few minutes, when we're worshiping God rightly, when we're loving Him and keeping His commandments, we are in the place where He can love us fully and we can experience the depth of that love. Now, God loves us either way. But sometimes you can't show your love to your child when they are disobeying. You have to show your love in a much less nice kind of way. There's punishment. There's discipline. You still love them, but you don't really like them. <laughs> you still love them, but love has to take a form of discipline. But when we love God and keep his commandments, we don't need discipline. When we love God and keep his commandments, we can experience the fullness of his love. God is jealous, and he has every right to be. Let's move on to what it requires of us. Now, that's not everything that this commandment says about God, but I think those are, those are the main ones. What, is, what does God actually want from us, though? 
Well, two big things. First, we must worship according to his commands. If God is the one to whom we owe our exclusive loyalty, then it stands to reason that he has the right to determine how we show that loyalty. Right? Right? This is where you say yes. Yes, yes. He does. So that's what he does. And so he tells us that in a couple of different ways. For one, he says, no false gods. We talked about that mostly last week with the first commandment because that's the kind of the big push on that commandment. But this commandment just continues the idea. God's a jealous God. He's not going to let you worship something else. So I'm not, I'm not going to spend much time on that, but just know that no false gods. You cannot worship the right way, but worship the wrong God. You've got to worship the right God. Second, no false representations of God. Now, this is where it gets a little more interesting because all of us can think about that statue of Artemis and we can say, oh yeah, I definitely don't have any of those kind of things. I don't have the little Buddha. I don't have those candles with Mary's face on it that, that I'm, I'm praying to, lighting incense all the time. I, I don't have those images in my home that I worship. I've got that, I've got that little cross thing that, 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 that we made a few weeks ago in the ladies' painting night. I got that, but I don't worship that. That's just decorative. But I don't really have anything that I bow down and worship before. The problem is, that's not our error most of the time. Our error most of the time is that we try to represent God in a way that's just not true to him. Think in your head. Oh, God's loving. He's always kind. He wouldn't hurt a fly. That's not the biblical God. Yeah, God is kind but he's also just. God is merciful, but he's also full of wrath. And if we fail to recognize part of God because it's uncomfortable or because we don't like it or because it's just not convenient for the way we want to live our lives, we are putting a false representation of God. We also tend to worship the thing that's in front of us. We also tend to worship what, what's near and so even though we might be trying to worship the true God, we think we have to have this or we have to have that in order to worship him. God says, no, no false representations. It's not just that you have to worship me. It's that you have to worship me my way. Isaiah, look, this is how silly it is. This is how silly, how bad we look trying to make false representations of God. Isaiah puts it this way. This is a long passage. Stick with me here. Isaiah 44, starting in verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing. Boy, he gets right to the point, doesn't he? And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions are put to shame. And the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it and planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. 
Also, he makes a God and worships it. He makes an, an idol and falls down before it. Half of it, he burns in the fire. Over the half, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a God, his idol. He falls down and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see in their hearts, so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten, and I shall make the rest of it an abomination. Shall I get bow? Shall I fall down, excuse me, before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? You're going to tell me all this effort you go through to make this God, all this time that you spent fashioning it and creating it, and somehow it's going to be something worthy of your worship? When you used half of that wood to cook dinner, you're going to worship the other half? This is the thing about cults. Every cult, every single cult throws away logic and reason. Every single one. Every single cult. And, and you know it because when you confront that belief with simple logic, you know it because when you ask them an easy question to show them the error of their ways, they just go back straight into the same thing. They just regurgitate it over and over and over. See, because when we create false representations of God, they always end up becoming false gods. Always. No false gods, no false representations of God, no false worship of God either. So him in our hymn books, I'll read you the, the lines. It it's, happens to be number 682. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, it says, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Feed me till I want no more. Now we look at something like that, a song like that, and we say, wow, that's... That's a powerful song. It's a song that was written um, in the 1800s, or early 1900s, excuse me, when there was a revival that started in 1904 in Wales. And the revival swept the nation, dramatically changed the nature of the country, so much so that this song actually became the Welsh kind of not the national anthem for Wales, but like an informal national anthem. God bless America kind of a thing for us. It's not the anthem, but it's, it's one that a lot of people love. That creates some interesting scenarios. Because every time Wales plays, it's traditional. When they play soccer, when they play rugby, which are kind of the two big sports there, uh, uh, they sing this song before the match. And so you get some interesting views of things that happen. Play the video, Nicole. I want you to, I want you to just, just watch this.
right there, Nicole. I think I'd pretty safely say he's not worshiping God in the right way, no matter what the lyrics say. We're not usually that brazen with it. It's not usually that obvious and open. Isaiah says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. We have this problem that we tend to worship outwardly and think that that's worship. We call this a worship service. We sing songs and we call it the action of worship. Even the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus's day, Jesus had to quote this verse to them because, because they were hypocrites. Oh, they say great things with their mouth. They're singing great words, but their hearts are nowhere near God. That's a violation of the second commandment. For us to sit here and pretend like we're worshiping God, when all in reality, all we're doing is coming here just to be part of another service, just to check a box off the list, just to do our duty, just to fulfill a commandment, then we're not fulfilling the commandment at all. God says... No images. He doesn't just mean no images. He also means you have to worship me truly. Jesus is talking to the woman on the well. And conversation's getting a little uncomfortable for her. He starts talking about all the men, that all the husbands that she's had in the past, and now she's with a guy that isn't her husband. She promptly changes the subject, and she says, well, you do say we should worship in Jerusalem, but my fathers have said that we should worship on this mountain. Instead of discussing the appropriate place of worship, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You can't worship God falsely. Even if you got the right God, you can't worship him the wrong way. You can't worship the wrong God the right way. You can't worship the right God the wrong way. Just as you can't have a substitute for God, you can't have a substitute for his approved methods of worship either. Which means that genuine worship, we ought to reflect some of God's jealousy. We must be jealous for God. Now, that doesn't mean we should be jealous for ourselves and call it for God. No, we have to be actually jealous for God. Maybe your jealousy doesn't look like Numbers 25, but in Numbers 25, there was a a bunch of guys, a bunch of Israelite guys going to the Midianites to get women and intermarrying with them, uh, uh, going and worshiping the gods of Moab. So Phinehas, the grandson of the priest Aaron, went... As soon as he saw this guy with this Midianite wife, he ran to their tent, ran in their tent, and killed them both. There was a plague that was running rampant because God's anger had been kindled against his people. The plague stopped when Phinehas takes this action. And then this is what God says. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, watch this, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people 
of Israel in my jealousy. We don't like to think of God in these kinds of terms, but the fact of the matter is that God is so jealous that if we are loving him, if we are seeking to keep his commandments, we must share some of that jealousy too. Now, maybe it's not that violent. Uh, usually it won't be, okay? Usually it's just not going to be that violent, but we still must be jealous for God anyway. We should look at those who offend God as those who offend us. My house should be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers, Jesus says as he's overthrowing temples and chasing money changers out. He wasn't just hangry. He was jealous. Jealous for the Father. We should stand up when God's being mocked. See, his glory should be the motivation behind everything we do. Because worship isn't just about singing, and it's not just about praying, and it's not just about the religious acts. Worship is really how we live. And if we are not zealous for God, what are we doing? If we don't love God so much that it drives everything that we do, Him being glorified is the sole motivation behind all of our actions, then what are we doing here? Folks, we may as well go home. We may as well just shut the doors, lock them up, never come back. But no, if, we're, if, we are, if we are solely motivated by a love for God that consumes us, then we'll worship him the way he ought to be worshiped. And we'll do it every moment of every day. We won't, we won't feel that this side of heaven. I'll just go ahead and tell you. But one day we will. Let's make sure that we get plenty of practice now in the meantime. Let's worship God the way he wants to be worshipped. Let's worship him in spirit and truth. Let's worship him jealous for his glory and not make poor representations as substitutes for him. God, you have called us to a difficult job. Simple. Simple to understand at least, but man, is it hard to fulfill to worship and serve only you, that, that's, well, that's beyond us. Let's just be honest. We can't live up to the standard. Thank you, God, that your son does. Thank you for sending your son to pay the price we could not pay, to fulfill the law that we could not fulfill, so that now we have the opportunity to worship you in spirit and truth to worship you the way you deserve to be worshipped, to worship you not putting in false representations or idols or images, not having all the, other, uh, all the other distractions and all the other things that take away our hearts from you. Father, help us, as Paul says, to fix our eyes on you. Help us to worship you in a way that glorifies your name because that's the reason we ought to be doing it. God, convict us where we fail you, for we all do fail you. Open our eyes to the sin that lays within us and provide that atonement that we need to move beyond the point of guilt to your grace. Father, help us. In this time of invitation, we follow you. It's our act of worship. In Christ's name.